Hello and welcome to the third series of the Bold Flavors podcast. I'm Timo, founder and CEO of Gusto. At Gusto, our vision is to be the most loved way to eat dinner and we currently deliver millions of meals every week. Our purpose is to build amazing products that have positive impact on people and the planet and we are customer and culture obsessed. From every episode, you can expect frank and fascinating conversations on leadership, what makes a person tick and scaling businesses. Since starting Gusto in 2012, I've spoken with so many amazing, inspirational and talented people who have shaped my thinking. This podcast is all about sharing some of these experiences with you. Today, I'm talking to Andrew, who at age 28 founded his private equity fund, Pervin. Andrew is clearly super smart, and after studying in Oxford, he gained amazing financial skills working in investment banking and private equity. This prepared him to found and scale his own fund. In this episode, he will talk about how he dared to dream this big at an early age, how he thinks about culture, both in companies he invests in and also at his own company, at what time he knows that a deal would succeed and what it is only he can do as a leader today. Andrew, thank you so much for joining the podcast. I'm really excited to talk about how you founded your business. But first, I want to hear where you grew up. Yeah, thanks, Timo. Um, so, yeah, I grew up in Leafy, Surrey, in the south of England. Middle of the road, childhood, had a good time. Went to the local schools and yeah, you know, I learned a lot through my time growing up. I think, um, you know, it was a quite a, um, a happy and uh, diverse set of experiences, which uh, which evolved quickly when I arrived at, at university into a different a different setting, let's say. I can imagine. What made it diverse? The school that I attended was a um, it was a, a charity backed school, which um, which about half the people there were from a you know a, assisted support place. Um, half were local kids, which just made it great because you you really learned to get on with a, a range of people from different backgrounds and the experiences that people had. Uh, you know, it was very international in in outlook and uh, and people's background were, were 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 mixed, and that gave everyone a chance to to get to know each other and, and travel together. And um, you know, I spent a lot of time going abroad, taking the opportunities I could, seeing how people um, grew up themselves. And this is a bit of a difficult question, but what what values do you think your parents, the school instilled into you, um, you still have today and you cherish? Definitely the values of hard work. I mean, I think like I always had the view that, and, and, I, and I learned from school at a hard, an early time that if you work hard and commit yourself to something, you can achieve almost anything, you know, that, that, that ran through my childhood. And I think the importance of getting on with everyone, I suppose, with all different walks of life. And I think that's, you know, that stayed with, with me through my career. Uh, and, you know, as, as I arrived at university, it was perhaps a bit less diverse. Uh, it's a bit more, um, elite, you know, in, in the university I went to. So, um, yeah, I think that the values that I learned as a child, uh, stayed with me and they're important in life and in our career and our jobs today right because it's um it's a it's a it's a variety of different people and backgrounds and roles that you find yourself in yeah really powerful point and when was the first time you ever thought about entrepreneurship business as as a child i always knew that i had big ambitions to create something but they weren't 
you know, extremely well formed, I would say. So it was long term vision and ambition. I always was fascinated by stories of entrepreneurs and what, you know, what people had done, people like Dyson or whoever the heroes were back in the day. Uh, I would read about them a lot and be very interested in their stories. Uh, in, my, in my first job, we studied, um, which was investment banking at Lazard. We, we early on, we were learning about private equity, and I was just immediately fascinated by it. Um, and the idea of being, you know, exposed to multiple industries and investing in different areas seemed like a way to be a kind of serial entrepreneur through the financial world, and fascinated me from the start. I love to explore more. Just before we go there, what did you actually study? I studied at university. I studied. Uh, a course called PPE, which is Politics, Philosophy and Economics, which is basically uh, a course for people who don't really know what they want to do. Um, it's, it, covers, <laughs> it covers all bases. I was amazed when I came to the UK and started in investment banking that half the people, or no, like 90% of the people had not studied math or finance as I did, because I assumed that's what you have to study to get into banking. Um, but in the UK, obviously, it works quite differently. And it gives you a much broader, uh, I guess, um, horizon of the world, um, which is a huge benefit, I'm sure. Um, and yeah, uh, well, so, oh, sorry, go. Sorry, yeah, I was going to say. I mean, indeed, I uh, when we when when we started in investment banking in you know in London and all the Europeans, they knew so much more. It took a good eighteen months to actually catch up. I do remember the experience of several Germans in my class, and they, I did, I hardly even knew what a balance sheet. In fact, I didn't know what a balance sheet was when I started, <laughs> and uh, that that was quite a steep learning curve um, compared to the Europeans who had been, you know, had already done a CFA in some cases by the time they started. There's a really easy rule of thumb how to calculate IRRs in your head, so internal rates of return, so the proxy for investment returns in any investment case. And you can literally just do it in your head. It's very, very simple. But it's a, it's a quite difficult formula if you do it mathematically correctly. And I remember being in investment banking. Um, we had these teachers teaching us how to model stuff. And I, I knew this formula by, by heart. And people just couldn't believe I can calculate this stuff in my head, whereas like the formula is actually really simple. If you if you had heard it before, it's um, it's quite easy. So it's uh, <laughs> yeah, fascinating. And so you chose investment banking. Why did you choose investment banking back then? Probably the same reason I chose PPE, which is um, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do, and it gave me lots of options. I didn't know what investment banking was uh, when I arrived at Oxford, and only after. Meeting various smart people on my course, they thought, well, if you're not, you can't really go wrong, basically. Start out in M&A, investment banking, and, and you'll figure out where you want to go from there. How about yourself? Why, why, did, you, did you know you wanted to go into investment banking? No, I interned with um, Siemens, BMW, and later Rothschild. And to be honest, the only reason why I went into investment banking is because I had this amazing American professor who um, taught us finance and investments. And he literally insisted on us all reading the Wall Street Journal every single day, <laughs> discussing like big you know, M&A deals in class, um, doing our own kind of analysis on deals. And I really, really, really liked it. It was so different than the normally quite dry and academic studies I had. Um, you know, I taught statistics, finance, and he just made it fun. So I started looking at banks. I had no idea what they really do. Back then I studied in uh, California and I literally just applied to investment banking jobs in New York, went to 
to New York for a week. They said, look, there's a job in, in Frankfurt. And then I came to Frankfurt and Frankfurt, they told me why not start in London. So I ended up in London um, and I had never been to the UK before, to be honest, but loved the adventure. So it was kind of, um, I guess, serendipity in my case. Um, and similar motivation, like having a toolbox, having the vantage point into different industries, what makes businesses succeed. I found it really, really fascinating. I was hugely passionate about it. Um, and how how was it like joining investment banking back then? Like what, what were the first couple of years like? It was fascinating. Uh, you learned so much. I mean, the, the learning curve was incredibly steep for the first six to 12 months, I'd say. For especially for someone with my background. So my, um, you know, my university degree in the end ended up focusing more on philosophy because um, I just found it the most interesting part of my PPE course, I ended up doing more of that. And so, you know, the first six to 12 months were steep, incredibly hard work, uh, as I'm sure all investment bankers experienced. Um, there wasn't much time to do anything other than work. But, you know, the novelty value to it as well, to be honest, was, was, wasn't was too bad. So you, you didn't mind finishing at two or three in the morning consistently because, hey, you're an investment banker uh, at that point. Uh, by year two, I guess that started to wear off pretty quickly. And um, I uh, personally, you know, I, I knew I wanted to go into private equity from, from the first day of investment banking. So started, you know, after six months or so, as soon as was feasibly possible, to be honest, looking at making the move. Nice. Um, yeah, quite similar. I I loved kind of the excitement at the beginning, deals, talking to very senior people, getting exposure to boards and decision making. And then, as you said, like after two years, it felt very repetitive and much more focused on PowerPoint slides and kind of calculating the number your managing director wanted you to conclude is right rather than finding the truth. And I, I guess I had a massive learning curve, but at some point I, I also really wanted to be on the buy side and, and just experience the world. If you actually have ownership, how it would feel differently rather than being a consultant. Um, so I think, so you stayed for two years, I stayed for two years, but I think you joined pre-financial crisis. I joined literally in 2008. So you probably saw mm. the much better first two years, whereas my two years were really characterized by rescue rights issues, convertible bond issues to keep companies afloat. And it was all a bit chaotic, to be honest. Fascinating experience. Yeah, no, um, I, I, I was there for two years of the go-go years. And then I joined private equity literally within the first few weeks when Lehman went bust. I was looking around wondering what was going to happen. And uh, <laughs> Did you ever feel like, oh my goodness, like, will I lose my job? How serious was it back then? I wasn't so worried about that because we were a small team and we had a portfolio to manage, but it was much, it became much more inward focused for a period of time. There was a lot of, yeah, I mean, there was a, a six month period of, you know, real kind of, yeah, just analysis of the performance of the companies in a level of depth that I'm sure, obviously I was new to it, so I didn't know what they were doing before, but it was, but it was all internal scenario planning, refinancing, you know, how, how much liquidity have we got? What's the worst thing that could happen over the next six to 12 months? And how do we get through that? Which companies could potentially go out of business? It was an incredibly intense, but absolutely fascinating period. And I, you know, I think it really, really shaped the way I thought for the next five to 10 years, because when you learn, when you start out in the business in a massive crisis period, just constantly assuming it's going to happen again or, or waiting for it to happen again, you remember how bad things were when that's when you got started and you think, you know, when we're looking at new investments, 
you know, what, what's going to happen if 2009 happens again, or, you know, how are we going to survive a crisis or how much liquidity have we got was always front and center of my mind as an investor, I guess, as a result of that school. Yeah, it makes, makes a lot of sense. Same for us. I guess my biggest learning was how entrepreneurial my boss was. So I didn't join private equity. I joined a hedge fund that mm-hmm. actually did private equity deals. It was, they pretty much did almost everything across the capital structure, including debt, convertible debt, long, short equity. Um, But what my biggest learning really was this, this whole philosophy of never waste a good crisis. And whilst I was completely shocked and probably absorbed looking at portfolio positions and thinking about how the portfolio gets through this crisis, my boss immediately jumped to where are the opportunities, which companies will, will strive, what happens when all the quantitative easing, low interest rates actually create real asset inflation. Oh, okay, let's buy property at you know close to zero percent interest rates. And so it was it was fascinating seeing them switch gears. And at what stage did you feel like your fund yourself? When was the inflection point? When did you focus on playing defense to actually thinking about opportunities again? Yeah, it's a really interesting point because you know one of the the learnings that I had you know two thousand and nine probably was being exactly on the other side of the situation that you just explained in that we we had our hands tied basically uh we saw so many exciting opportunities and you know i can clearly remember some scenarios where we were looking at you know investing in in debt investing even in some of the you know dis, uh, you know distress not quite distressed but heavily downtraded debt in some of our portfolio companies and we could just see a fantastic return on it. Uh, It seemed like a no brainer to us, but we spent the whole time poring over the agreements about what we were allowed to do uh, under the LP agreements with the fund investors. And basically the takeaway was the the straight jacket of a traditional institutional fund is, is not the ideal place to be. It doesn't suit all market environments. Markets change rapidly and you need to have flexibility to be able to take advantage of the opportunities, exactly like you said, which we didn't have. Um, we couldn't really do distressed stuff, and we couldn't really buy just uh, you know deeply discounted debt or or make the moves that were logical in that market. We just had to kind of sit there, wait it out, and wait for healthy companies with uh, you know at, at more normal valuation points to return because we didn't have the mandate to take advantage of the situation. It's funny how the grass is always greener because we sometimes looked at private equity funds and imagined how much easier life would be if we had a more clearly defined mandate because we we literally every Sunday had long calls to discuss what would happen next week from a trading perspective. And at times it, it felt so opportunistic. I think we really like longed for some kind of sector Hmm. thesis or like framework to invest um it literally was all over the place and in some way it was a huge benefit in in some way i guess um a disadvantage focus is powerful ultimately and how long did you stay for then five or six years in my private equity fund yeah which was great uh we went through a couple of deal cycles uh yeah a couple of exits and a few add-on situations. So yeah, it was it was it was a good time. That I guess the team changed quite a bit in that period, and it was quite different when I left than what I joined. Which um, uh, you know, I guess much like investment banking, but in a different way. But you know, you go on a learning curve, right? And it's you're, you're learning a lot. For it was longer in private equity than investment banking. The learning curve it was a good three years, I guess. But after year four or five, I felt you know it wasn't. It was it was more. It was beginning to get quite consistent and repetitive. 
at that point, you know, when we're, you know, late 20s-ish, you either kind of, in private equity business, obviously it's a long-term horizon with the fund cycle, you either hunker down and say, this is it for quite a while and you need to be there or you, or you make a decision to, to to go on and do something else. And I, I knew in my heart that it wasn't the place I was going to stay for the long term. So, you know, when that learning curve flattened out, I started thinking very seriously about other options and what I wanted to do with my with the next step. And I'm hugely fascinated in you developing pattern recognition skills. As you said, the feedback loop is quite long. You know, it probably takes at least three years to understand whether this is a good deal or not. What what kind of learnings did you take away? What made a good business a good business, a good team a good team? What's a good investment, I guess? There's a number of different factors. And I think, you know, to I mean, it's interesting what you say, you need to take three years, but I mean, you do tend to have a good feeling early on, you know, nothing beats a good start. You know, if you get get out of the box well with a, with a good tailwind, then, you know, those deals more often than not end up performing well. Even when there are rocks on the way, you've kind of got some uh, performance banked, so to speak. So hence buying well, buying at the right point um, or, you know, buying into a business which has a good growth tailwind in the near term, which is obviously much more easy to predict than what's going to happen in three years. That tailwind shouldn't be underestimated. You know, more broadly, I think it really varies depending on what the, the the fund is looking at. You know, one of the areas that we often fast we often talk about, and 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 Perwin's has a different focus than than what my old fund did, and that is, you know, how important is the management team, and are we prepared to do deals which which involve founders transitioning out, basically. And, you know, at the larger cap scale, that's very rare or doesn't happen because you've usually got professional management teams in place. Um, and, you know, it's about backing the team and there's, there's you know, the businesses are, you know, more like juggernauts and there's a bit, there's less you can do. It's harder to change direction of a, you know, the, the fund I worked for, we were investing, you know, three, $500 million per deal. Those businesses, billion dollar plus businesses were, you know, they're juggernauts and they, they move in a certain direction. It's harder to make the difference in terms of the underlying performance. Whereas, you know, when we started Perwin and, and still today to an extent, we're looking at businesses where, you know, the founders have reached, have potentially reached the end of their ownership period and and a new management team comes in. And that's about professionalizing those businesses. And there's a lot more levers to pull. Um, you know, the founders have often done a great job, um, spotted a niche, created a fantastic business, which is high growing. It's a you know, market leader, it's profitable. But they've reached they reach the end of their capabilities in many cases, and 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 that's where we spot opportunities for Perwin when we can, you know, take those businesses on, manage a transition with the founders where they you know they they, they want to find a way out the business, um, and then you professionalize the management team, and take the take the business on a new journey. So there's different approaches I'd say, but uh, but both can be fruitful. Um, but you know I'd say there's more upside potential at coming in at the an earlier stage and and tackling a um, a younger business with more different growth levers within it. I mean, intuitively makes a ton of sense. I've always kind of thought that private equity makes makes money through multiple expansion, capital arbitrage, and then finally, you know, operational improvement, strategic positioning, and so on. And I think th the more you can focus on that one, the more it seems like you control the outcome. Was that then quintessentially the, the thesis you had leaving private equity to start your own private equity fund? Yes. I mean, I think, look, we we have a private source of capital within well, backing Perwin. And, 
we felt that we would have a better angle on you know working with entrepreneurs working with founders uh and working with family businesses than institutional private equity because founders and entrepreneurs you know many are perhaps correctly suspicious of institutional private equity and you know they, they often have longer time horizons or you know they're concerned about you know being fired or just being sucked up into a large portfolio without paying much attention um or being treated as a number effectively and that kind of impersonal touch of institutional private equity whether it's fair or not is what many founders and, and, and managers uh, and entrepreneurs fear if they haven't yet been through private equity. So that's the gap where we saw a real angle for ourselves, where, you know, you can see who's, who's, who's capital it is in our case. You can speak directly to the decision makers. It's not a big rules-based institution. We have more flexibility and, uh, and, and yeah, it's a personal touch, basically. It's dealing with people. It's old-fashioned business rather than dealing with a set of rules and a fund structure. Um, so that was really part of the angle. And it's, yeah, and it's tended, to, it's tended to work well. Just talk me through the beginning. So most people I talk to find raising a fund for the first time incredibly difficult. Mm -hmm. Now you are structured slightly differently, but how did you find your first backer? We basically have, you know, four private backers and, uh, and, and basically I've known them for a long time. So it was a relatively easy journey for us. In one sense, easy, in one sense, not. I mean, you know, you need to have the trust and support and backing of a group of wealthy people and you need to you know have enough credibility and convince them that you know your business plan and your strategy is going to work and uh, and they and at the end of the day they're going to back you and sign the checks and so that was the process for us clearly a very different process than going out raising a first time institutional fund where you need to meet 200 or 300 people and you never know which ones are going to land in our case it was very much a rifle shot approach as they say uh with 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 some core backers that have been there ever since and fortunately their trust you know we we, we delivered and we repaid their trust with some good returns oh i have no doubt you did but it's really fascinating to me how old were you when you launched pervin uh, i was a little too young to launch a private equity fund uh, <laughs> <laughs> i was uh, i was 28 and um, See, i mean that's that's pretty pretty amazing i think the guys launching Carlyle, Blackstone, KKR, they're all in the late 30s, you're 28. How did it feel like launching it back then? I mean, it must have been difficult to convince everyone, okay, you had the long-term relationship, but it's a quite, like, it's a bold, big move. Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, and it was, you know, it was not easy. I mean, you can't just, you know, ha having capital is not enough. Um, you, you just have a private equity fund. And, you know, it wouldn't it wouldn't be right to say we were a private equity fund at the beginning. It was me at a desk with a backer. But so I suppose like, <laughs> step by step, uh, we created what what Perwin is today, which is, a you know, a, which has all the, the skills and capabilities of, of any mid-market private equity fund. So, yeah, I mean, it was a gradual process. I think, you know, key was hiring some gray hairs, of course. <laughs> You need to have that level of support to to convince owners that you're the right or to convince sellers that you're the right partner and the right owner um so there were a few key hires early on which people i knew from my career from my other fund and making those really made us credible and you know i suppose when we reached a team of four including a couple of experienced pe execs that's when we really hit the road and that was around you know 2015 i'd say and by, by then you kind of felt like, okay, we have a formula, this can actually scale, or did you have an inflection point before? 
I mean, there, there was a couple of deals along the way that were inflection points in a way, but I think really it was, you know, getting credibility as, you know, as, as a real investor that has a track record is is difficult. It takes time and, of course, some luck and some some breaks along the way. And, you know, we did we did a great uh, we got a great deal through my personal network in in Belgium. And, you know, so deals come through routes like that in the early days because you're just not taken seriously. You don't get onto the real buyer lists from the, the mid-market fund or the mid-market advisors because they've all got their entrenched relationships and so on. So breaking in was not easy, um, even though we did some, you know, it, that was a fantastic deal, but it wasn't a mainstream deal. It was really when we did um, we did Sumo, which is a video games development company in 2016, which won, you know, which just became a very high profile deal. It was, you know, deal of the year award and all this stuff suddenly everyone was who's poem and suddenly we won this deal which was um highly sought after and turned out to be a fantastic deal for us and and was really a game changer and after that we were kind of on the map and then then we were able to accelerate in terms of hiring more people seeing more deals and you know the flywheel continues and of course gusto is fundamentally changing the flywheel again for you <laughs> no um and just did you have any like massive fallouts in the early days um, i'm always fascinated i guess to learn from you know the failure the issues early on which which always is so daunting yeah no we did i mean we definitely did we had some difficult situations with uh with entrepreneurs we had a situation which uh you know was involved in the oil industry when the, and the oil price crashed in 2014 a lot of businesses really struggled at that period um including one early investment we made which was just a fascinating uh well, it was extremely challenging extremely difficult but just an amazing learning experience for us and for me um to be in the front line of a of a challenging deal situation um, and having to you know restructure that look at different financing options pull the business apart and i think you only really learn how a business is built up when you go to that level you know you pick it to pieces look at every liability on the balance sheet you look at every financing um obligation and security structure and you know it was quite a complex business and quite a complex situation with a lot of relationships with third parties and liabilities and uh, and vessels and picking through all of that was a, was a very interesting and challenging experience i can only imagine and At what stage do you move from deal discussion to risk and reward goals and po portfolio management, I guess? So if I'm the pension fund, um, I'm clearly not discussing deal by deal. I'm discussing, you know, I want to achieve this this hurdle rate and I, I, I'm, I'm okay with this level of risk. Do you see this inflection point on Pervin's journey coming up? Yeah, that's an interesting one. Um, I mean, definitely, yes. I talk about that with our funders. It's increasingly part of the day-to-day -day job, but it's not been part of the day-to-day -day job for a long, you know, many years. For many years, it was just, you know, down in the trenches, <laughs> trying to win deals, getting very heavily involved with our deals to help them in any way we can and, and add value. So really kind of, you know, sleeves rolled up, uh, hard yards. Um, and I suppose as we've scaled and now we've, you know, we've, we've, we've invested hundreds of millions now and we've um you know we've done over 20 deals 25 deals now and i guess when you get to a certain point there's an inflection which is wait a minute where are we where are we going with all this where how do we want to think about the allocation of capital across our different strategies the number of deals we want to do per year you know where do we want to be in five years 10 years and there's a lot more thinking like that um but i think you know 
it was proof of concept, I would say, for the first probably good six years. <laughs> it takes that long, really, to build a, a, a proper investor with um, access to the right level of deals. Then when you get to that point, you can start thinking, okay, more strategically, big picture, what what do we want to do? Now we've got options. You know, we could we could put more capital in this sector, we could do more more deals in you know France or across Europe, or we could focus more on growth deals. How, how important is control for us, for example? Should we only do buyouts, even if we see more attractive risk return in a in a growth deal? All those kind of scenarios are kind of luxury questions, but it always felt a bit you know, it would it would feel a bit premature to be discussing all those at the beginning because we hadn't yet broken through and had the option to have those discussions. It's kind of a luxury discussion to have. Makes makes perfect sense. Yeah, I, I guess there must be a size when this becomes so incredibly important. But equally, if you do it prematurely, you just waste a lot of time. And I'm really fascinated to hear your view on the market. There's so much capital in the system. How do you avoid paying too much? And how do you avoid hype, FOMO, you know, obviously multiple expansion is a key driver of value creation, but it feels like we're seeing peak, you know, valuations for lots of sectors at the moment. So Mm -hmm. how do you stay disciplined if the market is this hot? Look, I mean, a big part of it is see the long term and be patient where you need to be patient. So the beauty of our model is that we don't have to invest. We don't have pressure to invest. We don't, you know, a, a traditional fund, you know, if you don't invest in your investment period, you, you have to give the money back as everyone's like worst nightmare. Um, so it's all about deployment and making sure you fulfill your goals and then you can go raise the next one. And, you know, we don't have those kind of pressures. We, have, we want to invest, of course, and, you know, our backers have allocated capital with the idea that we invest it. But at the same time, they're very happy and more than happy if we sit on the sidelines for a while and say it's you know things are things are too hot at the moment and we're not going to do anything for a little while the beauty of our flexible model allows that you've got to be prepared to look at through cycle multiples and what i mean by that is you know entering many of our base cases today and everyone across the industry i guess you've got to accept cases that that, that work in a multiple contraction exit scenario so you can't you can't really assume that uh, multiples are going to be higher when you sell than they are now. So quite the opposite. So that 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 leads you to certain assets, right? Um, certain you need to make your returns elsewhere. So with growth and operational improvement and strategic initiatives and professionalization and all the other good stuff of private equity, of old-fashioned private equity, becomes more and more important in these times because you know you can't rely on multiple expansion. Yeah, it makes makes a lot of sense. And I guess. What I find fascinating is private equity as an asset class seems to have scaled relatively seamlessly. So today, private equity is so much bigger than it was 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 40 years ago. If you look at hedge funds, it feels like the asset class peaked at some point. And since then, it's it's gone down in importance again. And my own experience from working in a hedge fund was, you know, it's so founder driven every single decision is very entrepreneurial very much based on network on on inside whereas like private equity feels a lot more structured discipline driven process driven and and easier to scale how do you see the future evolve what will happen in the next 10 20 years what are kind of the trends i think it's not surprising that private equity as an asset class is expanding rapidly and i think it can play a very big role i mean you know the traditional get to a certain size, then IPO, there's no reason it needs to be the case. You know, things can say business, there's many advantages to staying private 
longer. And um, as people are realizing that, and there's a shift in mindset of entrepreneurs and, and investors, then you know there's no reason that the, the private capital markets won't stay and large, many and many businesses will remain private for longer and larger pools of private capital will make their money that way. Um, so that potential, I think, is definitely there for the long term. The other, sorry, the other trend I wanted to talk about was what I mean. What's happening, I think, in the private equity industry, and it's a long-term trend. But you know, it was it, when I first entered the industry, it was there, and and it's here even stronger now. Is I guess the the shift of ownership of investing towards the uh, the people who hold the capital. Basically, it's not a very eloquent way to put it, but you know, the example when I was in. You know, in 2008, it was the big pension fund. So teachers, OMAs um, were realizing basically they didn't need to send their money out to a bunch of mid-market independent PE funds. They should just hire the teams and um, and then do it in-house and disintermediate the, the, the mid-market funds. You know, it's essentially it's what we're doing at Perwin. Uh, you know, we've got a large, large family backers and, you know, the, the, the age of these large families sending out checks and just being treated as a, another institution to, to mid-market PE funds is, is, I think, declining. And more and more families or owners of capital are going to start doing it themselves. And particularly, you know, there's more and more talent out there that's able to do that, right? As the private equity industry has ballooned, there's a lot of execs out there who are happy to go and work with a family like we've done and, and start to build up their own in-house program. Now it's not the easiest thing to do in the world, and you know it took it took years and some luck and this and that. But obviously, it's not impossible either. So if you certainly, if I owned a lot of capital, I would do it myself rather than give it to a third party fund. Um, yeah, ditto. Um, so vertical integration makes makes sense. And now slightly switching from private equity and the lessons learned to you as a person and as a leader, what is it today that only Andrew can do? Over time, my role has evolved within the fund. And you know, speaking to investors is a key part of it, and recruitment is the other key part of it, and strategy is the third leg. I would say those are three areas that you know, I wouldn't say only I can do them, but they're the things that are most important for me to do, and I can have the biggest impact. So I spend a little bit less time than I did, you know, neck deep in every deal, partly because I'm, I'm able to do that because we've got great deal teams now and multiple deal leads and a lot of capability, um, and you know, as As many many entrepreneurs have said, um, the the idea of the game is to get to a certain point and and hire people who are better than you in each role, um, and that's absolutely what I've been doing, and uh, and and it frees up my time. But of course, the you know the overall direction of travel and hiring those people sits very squarely at you know at my feet, and so that's that's been more and more my focus these days. And when you work in banking, I guess you are a deal manager, and then at some point you you manage managers, and I guess now you're leading leaders. Like, how have you found that journey? Yeah, I mean, look, I I I've enjoyed it. I think that the way that I've done things always in 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 Perwin and the way every entrepreneur does it is you 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 end up doing the things yourself first. And so you kind of cover all bases. I mean, on day one, it's just you at a desk. So um I'd love to hear your story about how you went this way. But on day one, you start doing everything from finance to legal to deals to, you know, managing those deals to setting strategy. Now, over time, as you bring great people and experienced people and talented people, you know, step by step, you can dis break the link or disassociate yourself a bit with each of those goals and get someone better than you to do it. 
and I think as that's happened, yeah, I mean, we've we've hired more experienced and um, and, and talented people, and then the level of discussion just gets better. And it's not about asking people to go and do things anymore, right? It's about other people are are very much leading their areas of the business, and and you have much more interesting and dynamic discussions rather than having to be over every single little detail, which I just found a fascinating kind of process to to gradually step up, and it's it's. It's non-stop evolving, right? So in, in our case, we still have very little on the on the finance and admin and back office side, let's say. Uh, whereas we build up a very strong investment team now. So, you know, frustratingly, the part that I love and the part that's the most fun, which is the investing side, we've got really great people doing that. Whereas I find myself doing the admin and the finance and the structuring in the back office. <laughs> I can relate to that, yeah. And how, how important is culture, both when you invest into companies, but also, I guess, at Perwin? Well, to take Perwin first, it's, you know, it's absolutely critical. I really believe that we have a unique culture. I mean, I guess by definition, every company probably has a unique culture, but we really have a different culture to what a traditional private equity culture is. And that's partly as our roots being backed by a family a family with a family business environment. And, you know, the way family businesses think about culture, I think is very different to the way institutions think. And we think long-term, uh, we don't think about short-term profits. We think about developing people. We think about trusting people early on and allowing them to rise through the ranks internally. And, you know, it's not about short-term cycles and hiring and firing and getting the best talent in right now. And if you don't need it next week, getting rid of it. Uh, for us, it's about developing people. And, you know, that really goes both ways because, it, you know, people are loyal to you in return. And then the skills and the experiences you build in as an organization, they stay within the organization, right? People have no incentive to leave because they like working here. They get responsibility um, and there's a clear development path. And I think that that is lacking in many private equity firms or many financial firms generally, uh, where it's all about, you know, making as much money as possible in the short term for us with a you know with, with a long-term mindset of course we want to make good investments of course we want to make money in the next few years but uh, we're, we're thinking about 10 15 20 25 years out which is just something that traditional um or, or you know institutional funds don't generally think about and when you look at investments how do you think about culture or assessing people culture behaviors yeah, I mean, it's important. You know, if, you, if you're looking at a family business, it tends to have a certain culture and it depends if there's multiple members of the same family in there, then it um, it revolves around them and it can be more difficult for outsiders to, to break in and have an impact. Um, so that's that's one thing we observe. I mean, it, it, it's a positive, but it's also a an area where we know we're going to have potentially less influence and less impact. You know, I think it's a fascinating area of debate and discussion in entrepreneur and founder-run businesses, especially when the entrepreneur or founder is stepping out, as I mentioned, we do in some of our deals, because at that point, you know, there's a real risk of a vacuum, because in general, the culture of the business, right, is shaped around the founder or the founders, deliberately or not, you know, that's that's one thing I've realized without, I didn't, I didn't think about it much, I didn't set out on day one at all, and I don't know if I'm fascinated to hear if if you did, but I didn't set out on day one thinking I want a culture like X, Y, or Z. It just kind of happens and it falls into your the way you are as a person and, and it gets built around you somehow as a founder. And so that happens in tar businesses we target as well. 
Of course. And and then when the founders are leaving on, on day one or day two, you've got to reshape the culture. So in scenarios like that, we have to think very hard and be very careful and, and quite involved. In other scenarios, you know, where if it's already a highly professionalized business, it's 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 perhaps less of a concern. I don't want to say it's not a concern, but it's 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 always a topic, but it's it's not like okay, it's not an issue where the culture is a red hot topic that might cause problems post-deal. I mean, Gusto has a fantastic culture and you know, I, I see a lot of the, you know, the the longevity and the you know the commitment and the passion of the team really comes through. I mean, did you set out with that in mind, or did it happen over time? It definitely happened over time. I, I would love to claim that on day one I codified it. So, coming from the financial industry, I I never really thought about culture. I felt like culture is a huge buzzword and potentially abused, and it makes no sense or not much sense. But then increasingly over time, I realized that, you know, dream, deliver, care, kind of the framework, the overarching values we have as a company are like very, very important to decision making, to hiring, to everything. So we started writing them on the wall, like literally in every room we had them on the wall. We called meeting rooms after the values. And we started to make some effort. And I guess to me, it really means defining the winning behaviors. So the secret sauce that makes a company successful. How do you actually make the company as successful as possible? Well, you have to make these winning behaviors as repeatable as possible. How do you do that? By codifying your principles so that once the company goes beyond a certain scale, 50 people, 100 people, whatever the number, it becomes much tighter despite you not you know, meeting every candidate anymore. And so increasingly today, I believe that culture is by far the best predictor of financial success over three to seven years. And it's also the least understood one. You would never read a broker note um, or an analyst um, commentary on the culture of a company and the link to financial success but it is an extremely strong predictor. So I think it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it means the world focusing on talent, focusing on people, focusing on culture really shapes everything in the business. Um, so I guess one of the biggest learnings for me has, has just been that importance, which I definitely did not appreciate at the very beginning of starting Gusto. And I think you also see it a lot of times in negative examples. So for example, in banking, there was a lot to be proud of. You know, I worked at Rothschild, 250-year-old family business, huge brand equity. They managed to not ever dilute the brand equity. So many things to be proud of. But I never felt like people were seen as the biggest asset in the company. And ultimately, you are charging a fee based on people's service. And I think if you change the philosophy around people, how you treat them, how you unlock their full potential, how do you get the best out of them? How do you play to their strengths whilst accepting some of their shortcomings and solving for them differently? I think you all of a sudden generate you know, twice as much financial return on people in investment banking than if you don't pay any attention. So a lot of these more negative examples, I guess, led me to believe that there is money on the table and there's opportunity to really get people more engaged over a longer time frame. And you have incredible work ethics. How do you stay sane? You've got three kids, I believe. 
you work long hours, you've got a ton of responsibility, big fund, big team, lots of portfolio companies, uh, investors wanting updates. Like, how do you stay sane as a leader? Very good question. I wish I had a, uh, a, <laughs> a simple answer to that. I'm still struggling with it. But no, I mean, it's, it's all about having some time where you can switch off. You know, it's, it's some escapes. And I, it sounds simple, but I find it really tough to do. But, you know, I, I, you know, in summer, for example, you know, this morning I wake up early and I go for a mountain bike ride. You know, I'm really passionate about riding. I ride my mountain bike, road bike, just have an hour in the morning before anyone, before the day starts or read a book for half an hour, an hour in the morning. Uh, you know, I find it hard to switch off in the evenings, to be honest. I like to force myself to. I think it's a really good discipline. You've got to switch off your phone, uh, find a certain time, you know, eight o'clock, whatever it is, uh, switch it off and not look at it until seven the next morning. I, I tried to do that, but I fail. And your, your mind is so full of stuff from the day, right? That it's really hard to switch off in the evening. But I find like just, just block out half an hour in the evening, an hour in the morning, and then you can stay sane. Yeah, that's really great advice. Um, I'm I'm totally the same. Like I have to force myself to not look at my phone after a certain time anymore. I, I have no engagement cost. You know, I get into any topic super, super fast, but then I find it really difficult to disengage and just say, okay, that's it for today. Let's move on. So it has to be much more structured and, and there has to be some kind of rule. You can't read your emails anymore. Amazing. And exercise certainly resonates. That's my big outlet, exercising every single day. It doesn't have to be an hour. It should be you know, 15 minutes, sometimes yeah. 20 minutes, but it just takes the negative energy out, calms me down and allows me to concentrate much more. Look, really, really fascinating. Thank you so much for your time. I feel like I learned a ton despite having known you for many years now, um, but really, really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Timo. Thanks for the time and uh, speak to you again soon. 